Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I hope you hear me okay. Well, welcome. Thank you for um, participating in today's online event. My name is Lin Zhang. I'm Associate Professor in the History Department and at Boston College. As Associate Researcher um, in the Felbank Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard University, I uh, convened this research series called Environment in Asia. This series uh, pays attention to all things environmental uh, in relation to China and in relation to generally East Asia, be them historical or contemporary. So our series has just entered the ninth year. So for this academic year, the ninth year, we will kick off this series as we are doing right now um, with a conversation uh, by the conversation with Professor Meng Zhang from Vanderbilt University. So um, after, um, apart from today's event, we still have several other exciting events. So if you're interested in joining us uh, in the next several months, so please uh, look for our future event um, on the website of the Felbank Center for Chinese Studies. You can Google that. So let me just give you a hint of um, what's gonna happen soon. So October, on October 13th, we will have a conversation with Professor Ruth Marston uh, from the University of Pittsburgh to talk about her new research on the Yellow River. And uh, on November 5th, we will have a conversation with Professor In Jia Tan from Wellesley University to discuss his new book, War and the Reconfiguration of China's Energy Geography. Um, on December 2nd, we will have a conversation with a panel of uh, four scholars, which included Professor Ashley Assery from University of Alberta, Professor Mary Alice Haddard from Wesleyan University, Professor Stephen Harrow from University of Washington, and Professor Joanna Lewis from Georgetown University. So these four scholars will get, get together to talk about their newly published book called Greening East Asia, the rise of the eco-developmental state. Very important. So anyhow, um, check out these events on the website of the Felbank Center for Chinese Studies. Please pay attention that our events are scheduled for different days, but also at the same time for different timing. So uh, please pay attention to the time differences to these events. So um, without further ado, let me turn to our speaker today, Professor Meng Zhang. And um, just like, uh, just as what she just mentioned, this is a very special day, is the Zhongqiujie, the Mid-Autumn Festival for all of us. So uh, on behalf of my colleague at the Felbank Center, so Zhongqiujie uh, Kuaile to Zhang Meng and to everybody here listening to our conversation. Um, the past two years has been so difficult. Um, we lost many families, we, many of us lost uh, loved ones, and uh, many overseas Chinese like me and Professor Meng Zhang, we haven't been able to um, visit our family for a long time. So it has been a very, very, very hard time. So we appreciate your participation. You gave us sense of, of community, of companionship. And I uh, particularly want to mention, I really thank Professor Meng Zhang uh, for being with us today on this holiday day and also uh, 
heavy teaching day for her. So without further ado, let me quickly mention, uh, no, introduce uh, uh, Professor Meng Zhang. She is a associate professor of history in the, uh, at the University of Vanderbilt. She is a historian of the late imperial and modern China with a particular interest in, in, um, in economic and environmental transformation political economy and the transnational connections in the rise of a global capitalism. So recently, Professor Zhang published her new book called um, In Timber and Forestry in Qing China, Sustaining the Market from the University of Washington Press. So if you're interested, please check out this book. And I have my digital copy here. So it's a fabulous read. I really enjoyed it. It generated so many thoughts and questions. And I want to also quickly mention Professor Zhang currently working on a very interesting project, which is about the social life of edible bird's nest. Yan Wu. So if you are interested in similar related issue, please uh, reach out to her. So um, for our online audience, uh, you must have noticed there's a note to you uh, through chat. So if you have questions uh, about this um, uh, talk, feel free to type out your question in uh, by using the Q&A function. So without further ado, let me turn to Professor Zhang for your uh, talk today. Thank you, Ling, for having me here and for this very kind introduction. Um, it's really a great honor because I have been such a big fan of the environment in Asia series and um, I'm very excited to have this opportunity to introduce some findings from the book. Um, I look forward to your comments and questions, Ling, and I'm sure the audience will have wonderful questions for further discussions. So I will try to keep the presentation within 30 uh, minutes. Um, Okay, so um, <clears throat> so um, timber, um, as, as you know, is really the pre-mountain equivalent of reinforced concrete, right? It's really the building blocks of Chinese cities. If we think about uh, the, the iconic architecture in the urban landscape of early mountain China um, and early mountain East Asia in general, you know, the theaters, the guild chambers, temples, ancestral halls, or even brothels, restaurants, and tea houses. Uh, so all of these were built with timber logs. So the cover design of the book uh, came from a section of this 18th century painting uh, called Prosperous Suzhou. And as, as the title suggests, um, it depicts the lively urban uh, scenes with people from all walks of life in this affluent Lower Yang's metropole. Uh, this particular section shows two timber rafts floating into the city, uh, supplementing the material basis of this um, prosperous era. So if we um, uh, sort of uh, look at, you know, this, this photo from the early 20th century, uh, it shows the real life situation of timber logs blocking the waterways in the city of Hangzhou, the nearby, a nearby um, uh, city in the Lower Yangs area. So in response to such booming demand, um, an interregional timber trade structure developed over the course of several centuries and expanded to cover thousands of miles. By the late 18th century, um, by my own estimate, this interregional timber market was bringing at least 5 million timber logs annually to the Lower Yangs region. And if we uh, start from these Lower Yangs metropoles like Suzhou and Hangzhou, and we trace backward 
the steps traveled by these uh, timber logs, then we would encounter these uh, much bigger rafts riding the waves of the Yangtze River. Um, we would see you know, the rafters, the itinerant merchants, sawmills, um, and then lumberjacks and the very um, hard, hard, um, difficult terrains that they had to overcome in the logging process as this um, 16th century publication illustrates uh, called Hardships of Logging. And uh, finally to the forest lands that were claimed, managed, um, planted and transacted by the local dwellers with written contracts uh, like this one from Guizhou in the early 19th century. So the scope of the whole book is um, this, this entire supply chain that connected um, the basin of the Yangtze River, which connected the consumption centers from the lower Yangtze area to the forest state mountains and the valleys of the Gan, the Xiang, the Yuan, and the Han rivers. So all of, of all these are the tributaries of uh, the Yangtze River. So this was a system that was uh, sustained by a complex set of in institutions in production, uh, harvesting, transportation, investment, um, transaction, and uh, taxation. So on this map in particular, you can see the little red triangles that indicate um, the um, tax stations along the um, water um, transportation routes. So the um, temporal durability and the geographic scope of the timber trading system immediately generate two questions for me, two questions of sustainability. Um, just uh, add, add to add some qualification, I'm aware that system sustainability is a buzzword and it has come to be criticized for its uh, limitations as a policy objective and as a theoretical framework. Um, so the book itself talked a little bit more about these issues, um, but for this study, um, I use sustainability in the weak sense of sustained yield and social economic relationships. And for that purpose, I think it is still an appropriate term for me. So the first question is how to um, sustain a reliable supply of timber? Were there effective institutions for forest management? Um, if so, what did they look like? And uh, the second question is how to sustain a reliable, um, the second question is how to sustain a business network that um, spanned more than a, a thousand miles. Were there um, effective institutions for uh, market activities? And um, um, so th these would be institutions to enable transactions between strangers. So the first question brings uh, this project into the literature of forest history, uh, common pool resource management, uh, environmental governance. The second question brings in the literature on um, institutional economics, the so-called new institutional economics, right? trade diaspora and commercial capitalism. Both lines of literature have largely been informed by um, um, Euro-American historical experiences and they come with very strong assumptions um, about what good practices or good institutions should look like. And against that benchmark, the Chinese experience would look weird at, at first glance, uh, especially if one is to look only at some aspect of it and not consider the whole picture. So my work not only seek to uh, delineate the actual mechanisms through which 
what seemed to be peculiar Chinese practices worked uh, in reality, but also to reveal the intertwined connections between these two aspects, right? To highlight the interdependence and co-evolution between the regime of resource production uh, on the one hand and the regime of resource um, circulation on the other hand. So this is a point that so far has received little attention in the um, existing literature. The central argument that I tried to convey in the book can be summarized by this triangular dynamic between the state, the market, and the forest. Um, so to portray this big picture, I'm using these terms here as a shorthand, while in reality, each one denotes not internally coherent uh, entities, but as the book shows, um, you know, the state, the forest, the market are each very complicated. They represent very complicated um, idiosyncrasies. Um, but as a summary, I think they're, they're useful. Um, the, so first, the state, right? The presence of uh, the state was rather removed for both the market and the forest. Um, this affair is a loaded word, I know, but I think in this case, it quite ca accurately captures the situation. By the 18th century, the imperial state had retreated from direct forestry and logging. Uh, it had come to depend on market procurement to meet its own timber demand for uh, the construction of palaces, um, um, for the construction of imperial mausoleums, and so forth. It had also um, withdrawn from direct regulation of marketplaces and turned to depend on brokers and merchant organizations um, for both administrative and economic intermediation. Furthermore, the quota of timber tribute demanded by the central state from the territories within the Great Wall annually was in total a little bit more than 7,000 logs, which was minimal compared to the annual market capacity of 5 million and more logs. Um, and more, remarkably, more, more remarkably, most of that came not from natural forests, but from privately managed plantations. And this is uh, tree planting by smallholders, not the type of huge plantations in the, uh, in the context of the US history, right? So this state um, both allowed for private claims of um, forested land and free market exchanges of timber. And the state depended on um, private forestry and market supply for its own need. Both of these aspects were in great contrast to the model of European slash modern state forestry. Now moving on to the second node, uh, the most remarkable feature during the late imperial period um, and uh, other wonderful um, works that have been published recently have shown this, like Ian Miller's book, uh, which covers the, the period before the team. Uh, so we now have good information that during the longer late imperial period, there emerged a complicated system of market-oriented replantation of timber um, across the broad regions to the south of the Yangtze River. This development was a very important countercurrent to the overall trend of deforestation in the face of tripling population growth during uh, the, the Qing Dynasty. Um, so I will share, so to get into it, I will just share this uh, anecdote from the early 20th century. 
Um, Robert Dollar, uh, who is a San Francisco-based uh, lumber magnate, who specialized in the Trans-Pacific trade of uh, lumber from the Pacific Northwest to East Asia. Uh, he was um, conducting some business trips in China, uh, you know, um, along the Yangtze River. Um, he encountered the big timber rafts floating down the Yangtze River, uh, and he made some remarks about China's domestic timber supply and what it means for his business. So he said, uh, for a long time, I thought, when they were cutting such small timber, they must be nearing the end of their supply. But on investigation, I find that whenever a small tract is cut off, it is compulsory to immediately reforest it by planting the ground over with small plants. And um, that in a couple of decades, a full crop is again ready for cutting. This is quite an improvement on the American mode of cutting everything down and doing nothing to reproduce. This Chinese model of reproduction will give them an everlasting supply of small timber. And, and he asks, would it not be well before uh, it is too late to take a leaf out of the Chinese book of knowledge, even though Wilson Green knows so much more than they, and for his own business, the implication is that the Chinese demand for the Oregon pie um, exclusively call for the huge types, right? So for the smaller varieties, China had depended on its domestic, domestic supply. Um, so this reforestation practice so admired by Dollar was certainly not universally practiced in China, right? but it was indeed true that in some places, especially in Southern China, replantation was routinely um, practiced. And a close examination of this reforestation regime serves to question the validity of, very of a very simplified linear model of change, right? You have um, uh, urbanization, commercialization, and then demand for timber, and then uh, deforestation, and then you have to have the state stepping in to have some preservation policies uh, with state forestry. So that is a very linear model of change um, that you know, this study serves to challenge um, so that we can get at a more finely grained uh, history. We could draw valuable insights from these instances of more or less successful attempts at mitigating the often conflicting um, demands of environmental stewardship and economic prosperity. Although this is not a perfect solution, but um, I think we 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 have um, we have you know uh, the opportunity to draw some valuable insights from this historic experience. So I find a common set of forestry practices across the broader regions to the south of the Yangtze River, despite very different, sometimes very different um, local conditions. Um, they included uh, you know, these key features. Um, so first they had private instead of state ownership of mountain lands. Um, second, they had a rotational planting of timber trees for sale in the market. And uh, lastly, and most importantly, um, we find the use of a shareholding structure to mitigate the challenges of long-term investments um, because the most common species of timber trees used in the plantations, uh, which was China fir, uh, shanmu, it usually demanded three to four decades to mature. Um, and this compared to other timber species, this is already a very fast growing tree, but even China fir would, would demand uh, at least three decades. So the shareholding structure really um, helped uh, the smallholders to meet this challenge of long-term investment. 
I guess it wouldn't really shock any scholar who knows something about late imperial Chinese land tenure that the same contractual formats for rice paddies were also used for timberlands as well. But out of these familiar contractual terms, abstract shares were created based on both land and labor input. And people use the shares um, to claim future profits from the growing trees, um, which were to be cut in a couple of decades. And the shares were tradable uh, and further divisible as liquid financial instruments using written contracts like this one um, that we have seen before from the Southwestern province of Guizhou in 1890. Um, so let's look at how it worked in more detail. So the bundle of rights over a mountain land property can be uh, first divided into subsoil, meaning the legal title of the land and the trees standing on the land. And then the standing trees were, could be further divided between the landowner's shares and the tenant planter's shares. Usually it's a 40%, 60% divide. 60% uh, for the landowning side, 40% for the tenant planters. Once the labor-intensive planting stage um, came to a successful conclusion, usually that is by the fifth year, a contract was um, signed between the tenant and the landowner to confirm that initial uh, agreed upon division, right? Um, it will confirm that the tenants had successfully completed their tasks. Therefore, they uh, do have the legal claim to that 40%. Um, after this confirmation, these shares then became very liquid assets. They're tradable in total or in further divided portions. The holder of the subsoil, um, the legal title of the land. Um, so that person may or may not be the same person who eventually held the landowner's shares, right? Because all of these shares could be uh, traded multiple times before it's time for the cutting of the trees. Um, but eventually, the holder of the subsoil right then get back the land after the standing trees were cut. Um, and he could then contract new labor to plant new trees for the next cycle. So let's just look at this uh, contract that we saw earlier as an example. Uh, here is what it says. So the seller um, was Jiang Yingde, right? And the, the property in question uh, was the Baogu Mountain. Of the standing trees uh, on this mountain, the tenant's share was 40%, the landowner's share was uh, 60%. And this 60% landowner's share was further divided into four smaller shares. And this seller, Jiang Yingde, owned one and a half shares. So now these one and a half shares were sold to four buyers who then divided the shares equally among themselves. So eventually uh, each, of the four, each of the four buyers then got um, a little more than 5.6% of the standing trees. So if we look at the um, sort of trend over time, um, that the number of different types of timberland transactions over, over time, so from the mid 18th century to the end of the dynasty, we can see that the bottom layer, which represents transactions of uh, landowners and planters' shares, 
overtime became the dominant mode of property transaction, right? Much more prevalent than the transactions of whole properties. Whole, whole property transactions is the top layer, which became you know, almost um, uh, neglect, neglectable by the end of the 19th century. And um, the accumulation of such transactions over decades then created very complicated shareholding structures. Um, so this is the shareholding structure of one property at the time of tree fouling. Uh, we don't have to go into the details here, but we can simply get an idea of how many people came to get a slice of the cake in the end. And if the shareholding structure um, on one single property could get this complicated. We can imagine the social network that a person could get involved in through such transactions of shares over his lifetime, right? Uh, I can talk more about the social network of a particular uh, landlord in the, in the local communities during the q and if, if people are interested in that aspect. So um, now we have seen how smallholder market-oriented timber plantation could be possible in the long run, thanks to the creation of abstract shares. Now, going back to this triangle, um, plantation forestry gradually became the dominant source of timber for both the state and the market. It flourished under the property norms of local communities and it responded flexibly to market prices. Lastly, the market was um, sort of um, interregionally integrated and it, it is also decentralized. Um, this is satisfying the demands of the state and the private sector and channeling funds into forestry. Um, what I want to stress is that if forestry was important um, to satisfy the market, the market was equally important for that particular form of private forestry as practiced in Southern China, right? because profit along the supply chain translated through multiple layers into incentives on the ground for reforestation. Um, when this chain of exchange and profit was challenged or even cut off, as was increasingly the case in the early 20th century, um, with you know, domestic turmoil and foreign invasion, we don't see natural forests growing back, right, thanks to second demand for timber, but rather the abandonment of timber replantation in favor of other kinds of cash crops or subsistence farming, like growing maize and potatoes and so forth, uh, which could lead to serious environmental problems on the hillside. So, if resource-sustaining institutions, by here I'm by this I mean uh, the replantation forestry, uh, if if that had been important for um, forestry, then under this general framework, market-sustaining institutions were equally important to make sure that money eventually goes into forestry to keep the people on the ground going and continue to invest in this industry. So um, the timber business was a long distance bulk trade that ran on short-term credit. So like other trade of this nature, right, long distance and, and um, uh, credit dependent, it was haunted by the risks of default and information um, asymmetry. So in such a business among strangers, it could be difficult um, to, for example, determine 
if a potential customer is financially solvent, uh, if you know this is a reliable person to whom you could then um, allow him to make a purchase on credit and believing that in four months, this person will deliver um, the, the money owed to you on time, right? So um, that's a risky matter. In combating such risks and in trying to enforce contracts, um, the complementarity between formal and informal institutions played a very big part. So um, first we have merchant organizations, uh, in this case, mostly timber trade um, associations. Uh, most of them would start as a native place association for timber merchants from a particular locality, say uh, timber merchants from um, uh, the Linjiang prefecture of Jiangxi, they probably form an um, association um, of uh, their, their folks. Um, it is likely that over the course of the 19th century, uh, some of these very localized um, associations would expand their membership to include uh, more people, maybe from nearby counties or from the same province. Um, so we see that integration, that, that expansion happening uh, in the 19th century. These organizations regulated business norms and used um, reputation mechanisms and internal information sharing um, to punish the breaching party. And then um, chambers, of chambers of Commerce was a later addition to the set, right? Um, it came into the picture from the first decade of the 20th century. Um, the Chambers of Commerce in enhanced cross-regional communications with its national network because it is a semi-formal uh, institution. And it served to formalize the communication between merchant organizations and the court system, which such communications had long existed, um, but through the Chambers of Commerce, it became a more formalized platform. And then the court system recognized and enforced business customs, and they enlisted the support of these other two in adjudicating commercial disputes. Uh, in the interest of time, I won't go into details for each of these institutions. Instead, I want to share a simple dispute case to just illustrate how they worked together. Uh, I'd be happy to talk more if you are interested uh, during Q&A. So this is a, a fraudulent bankruptcy case that involved players uh, in Shanghai and in the Yongjia County of Zhejiang. The two places are, are about three, 300 miles apart. So it's just a five hour drive today. Uh, but at the time it took more than a week for timber transportation uh, along the river. Uh, so please just pay attention to the flow of information rather than the specifics. Um, it could get a little bit complicated. Um, but I used the green line to represent timber, the red dash to represent if someone um, owes money to another, per to another person. And the concrete red line represents the flow of money and the black line represents if there's a, a initiation of a communication or re request sending in a particular direction. All right. So it started with a transaction that happened in Yongjia. Lin Zhensheng bought timber from Liu Zhenfeng on credit. So uh, timber flows from Liu to Lin, while uh, Lin 
is in debt to Liu. Right? Um, but uh, really, this is a fraudulent case, meaning Lin had no intention to repay the debt from the beginning. Rather, with these and many other unpaid debts, he announced bankruptcy and he absconded with the timber to Shanghai. And he sold the timber to two Shanghai stores, Yinji and Shengdalong. So the two Shanghai stores are now in debt to Ling. After the grace period, which at this time, the customary grace period was four months. Um, then in Yongjia County, Liu brought the complaint to the Yongjia Timber Trade Association, which then forwarded the case to the Yongjia Chamber of Commerce, which then contacted the Shanghai Chamber of Commerce, which then contacted the two stores in Shanghai, asking them to withhold their payment to Ling. After a month, Lin's bankruptcy case was sorted out by the Yongjia Chamber of Commerce and the Timber Trade Association in that city. And all of his creditors, including Liu, uh, came to um, agree on a proportional compensation. Uh, so they, they won't get their full, um, uh, all, all of the debt um, repaid, but only a proportion of it, um, depending on how much money Lin could master at this time. So with the bankruptcy case coming to a resolution, the two Shanghai stores were instructed to forward their payment to the Zhenxun Association, which is their local timber trade association in Shanghai. Um, and then the Zhenxun Association forwarded the money to the Yongjia Chamber of Commerce, which then oversaw the delinquency of these total assets and payment to all of his creditors, Leo among them, right? So this was a relatively simple case and it was resolved successfully without even going to court. Um, but the channels of communication and the kind of measures that were taken in this case were quite representative in such sort of cross-regional uh, translocal um, disputes. The coordinated actions of uh, these organizations was uh, really far more, far more flexible and effective than if they had to rely only on the court system. Right? So in this case, uh, for example, you know, by having the two stores in Shanghai hold on to the money payable to Ling until further instruction, the trade associations, of course, representing the, the interest of the creditors, um, effectively froze part of Ling's assets. Right? So the right to uh, dispose of the frozen money was entrusted to a third party, uh, the Yongjia Chamber of Commerce, to make sure that these residual assets would be fairly distributed among all of his creditors according to their uh, agreements. So the role played by the network of uh, chambers of commerce was particularly uh, important given the lack of political unity uh, and, and the lack of legal clarity in the early years of the Republican period. And by curbing such fraudulent transactions, uh, this web of complementary institutions um, could uh, enhance the use of credit and facilitate the smooth flow of uh, timber. 
Okay, so we have seen the interactions between the market, state, and uh, forestry as an intertwined whole. Uh, I hope you know this short presentation could give you an overview of how that um, interregional dynamic played out. Um, the timber trade system um, was uh, open and profitable to diverse groups of players along the supply chain, uh, from the mountain owners and planters to the rafters, itinerant merchants, and to the brokers and retailers. The state retreated from direct forest management and market control, but relied on indirect means to procure materials and to monitor market uh, activities. Um, then the markets, sort of merchant organizations and layers of formal and informal platforms of conduct, uh, contract enforcement, um, then provide the channels to resolve disputes and encourage faithful tra transactions to the extent possible. And I should add that this is not unique to the trade of timber, but widely applicable to long distance trade in China during this period. So the systems, quote unquote, sustainability in both the sense of sustained timber yield and sustained socioeconomic relations, then um, depended on the smooth circulation of trees, uh, people and uh, credit. Right? So obstruction to any segment of this cycle, whether it's a blocked transportation route or it's a financial crisis that eroded the merchant's working capital um, leading to bank runs. Um, so all of these um, obstructions would ultimately factor into the decision on the ground of whether to cut the trees and whether to replant them for the next cycle. So to call this system, um, uh, sustainable um, should not be read as an unabashed call for deregulation or prioritization, right? This is not an argument that the late imperial Chinese model of private forestry was better than the model of state forestry. Uh, although I, I do hope to challenge that, you know, often assumed uh, sort of superiority of the state forest, forestry model. But rather what is really important, and I want to stress, um, is that the label of the ownership or regulation regime, whether it's, whether we call it public or collective or private, matters much less than how well the specific dimensions work together. Um, if anything, so as I put it here, um, the key message is one about systemic coherence. So when one node of the triangle is forcefully changed without thinking about appropriate coordination from the other two, the system then breaks down uh, as so happened in the 20th century, right? Just briefly, the rush to state forestry in the 1940s, so the last decade of the Republican period and the 1950s, for example, not only encroached upon the space of private timber merchants, which is the goal of that reform, but unintentionally, it also disturbed the size of timber plantation by stripping the local tree growers of their discretion and bargaining power, leading to a round of premature cutting. And then between the 1950s and 1980s, radical and frequent policy changes uh, in the socialist era um, then defeated the community's confidence in the security of their holdings, even when sometimes the new policies were in their favor, but they don't have enough confidence in that, that new policy. So um, the valuable lesson from this history is um, probably the appreciation that public efforts are better spent coordinating with existing institutions and practices 
than trying to invent something new from scratch. Um, in recent years, we see in Southern China, a revival of many of those forestry practices that had a deep root in the late imperial period, including flexible responses to market incentives, voluntary self-organization through shareholding systems, and uh, some you know, very rapid methods to resolve minor conflicts within the local community. So I think with appropriate uh, institutional support, administrative support, um, maybe some carefully designed subsidies and restrictions, um, these longstanding practice, practices could prove to be useful legacies toward our contemporary goal of resource conser- conservation and regeneration. Lastly, I wanna um, conclude by a remark on regional diversity because I've focused on uh, Southern China. Um, well, so maybe this Southern China model could be regarded as one archetype of Chinese forest management, but certainly not the only one, right? Um, if, for example, one hopes to find in Chinese history, uh, historical precedents that resemble the ideal type of modern state forestry, or even traces of preservationism, the best candidate, although not exactly, uh, 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 not an exact match, but sort of the best candidate would be the team policies toward the forest beyond the Great Wall, right? Um, in Manchuria and Eastern Mongolia, and there have been some very good studies in that regard. So comparisons within and beyond China could help us better appreciate how regional forestry um, differences resulted from both uh, material and ideological considerations and divergent forest ecologies. I will stop here and look forward to your comments and questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Zhang Meng. Thank you so much for sharing your research with us and the cases you presented. I think that they're extremely um, uh, impressive. As you said, they're very complex complex, very complicated. So I highly encourage um, scholars uh, who participate in this event to, to go back to check out your book and uh, go back to the book to look for those even more complicated, complicated mm-hmm. cases. So I would like to remind the, ten, uh, the attendees of this event. So uh, we the event will end um, about I think about 35, in about 35 minutes. So we will have a little bit time for Q&A. So um, if you have any comments, any thoughts, any questions, uh, please um, share them uh, with us through the, um, by using the Q&A function. So, but before we, let's give our audience a little bit, a few minutes to formulate their comments. I will actually (laughs) want to put in a request first to hear mom, so I'm really grateful that you talked a little bit about what happened in early 20th century and also mid 20th century, right? So kind of a legacy uh, plus the breakdown of the late imperial, um, um, this timber economic model. Um, but would you please go back in time actually to break down this lengthy late imperial uh, time for us a little bit, right? I believe you talked about the Song period um, mm-hmm. and then the, um, this economy was matured in the mm-hmm. 16th century and then got into the Qing and you also wrote about the same thing many times. Uh, Taiping Rebellion was a huge issue in this long yeah. history. And the end of the chain, the Republican era, seems a lot happened. And I just feel like 
it would be great if we add a little bit um, more, in, you know, temporal nuance. That would be wonderful. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, well, the, the focus of the book really um, has been the 18th and 19th centuries. I do try to sort of look at the development of these practices in the preceding centuries. Um, so even in the Southern Song, we see the development of commercialized uh, forest re sort of reforestation um, in the hilly areas of the Lower Yangtze region, right? Um, so that is to supply the Southern Song capital of Hangzhou. Um, gradually, um, I think we can sort of have a timeline to trace the spread of such practices from the Lower Yangtze region, you know, Anhui, the mountains in Anhui and uh, Western Zhejiang, and then spread to Jiangxi. So that, that process is certainly discernible by the mid Ming, And then eventually getting to the Southwest, uh, so in uh, Hunan and in Guizhou, um, merchants started to come in to, the, to these regions for um, cutting from the extraordinary natural forest in this region in the early 17th century. Um, and then after the cutting of natural forest, they started to practice reforestation. Uh, so for example, the farthest segment of uh, this uh, practice in the eastern part of Guizhou um, started to mature by the late 18th century. Um, so I would say, you know, this whole process is a coordinate, well, I wouldn't say intentionally coordinated, but you can see how um, the forces from the expansion of the Mingqing Empire, right, into the minority regions in the Southwest, really cleared the way for the entering of commercial capital to um, extract the natural resources in this region. And then the same merchant capital provided um, the seed money for the cultivation of these, uh, the regeneration of these resources in the later decade. And this dynamic first happened in the Eastern provinces and by the Ming in the, um, Middle Yangtze, and then by the Qing in the southwestern provinces. Thank you for sharing this big picture. I think it helps our audience here. So we are looking at several questions here. So um, Meng, would, would you like to go to the first question I think is raised by Professor Chris? Absolutely. So sorry, should I go to the Q&A, right? Not the chat box, but the Q&A. Yeah. So, uh, Professor Edwards um, asks, says, so thank you for this fascinating lecture. I'm looking forward to reading the book. I'm wondering how this picture fits with the predominant picture of extreme deforestation painted by, most notably, Camp Pomeranz. Is this picture of a deforestation more relevant to North China? If so, can you tell us why that sharp divergence between North and South came to exist? Mm -hmm. Or is this picture of deforestation just wrong? If so, how did that mistaken view happen? Well, um, th this is a great question and a very complicated question. Uh, thank you very much for that. I, um, uh, I would say, I wouldn't say the deforestation picture is wrong. It's actually still a correct, a correct 
depiction of the the big picture, right? We see forest coverage, whether that forest is natural or man-made. The in the total forest coverage in China during the Qing Dynasty did shrink.、Um, a lot of that、um, is the result of reclaiming forest into agriculture land, right?、Um, The demand for timber played a role in it, but I would say it's a secondary role compared to、um, the demand for agricultural land from the booming population. With that said,、um, I also want to emphasize that、um, the growing of trees is really for timber, right? So for for the type of large construction materials to be transported over long distance.、Um, So, for example, in、uh, Ken Palmer's work,、uh, when he talk about deforestation,、um, it is in it, it deforestation had created a few shortages. So that is a key area、uh, in which we could detect that you know the forest in this area had been gone and people don't have enough、um, like branches for fuel.、Uh, but even when man-made Uh, reforestation could supply for, could meet the demand for timber. It never became worthwhile to transport fuel, to transport wood to be used as fuel over long distance. It's simply, you know, too cost, not cost efficient enough to use that valuable product of thirty years waiting time to be used as fuel.、Right? So even with the southern China, so even with the commercial plantation in southern China. Flourishing,、uh, it couldn't really ex- could, it couldn't、um, really mitigate the fuel shortage problem in you know faraway places. So North China did still have a problem with fuel,、um, and because it's deforested,、um, it's not resolved.、Um, North China is not as dependent on timber as a construction material as Southern China. So bricks were used more widely in in the north. Um, timber was used for more sort of high-scale、uh, building, or for the main structure of of the building. Right, so that's for、um, deforestation and、um, that sharp difference between north and south. So really, by my period, the north had long been deforested. I guess the same could be said for、um, the Lower Yangtze region as well. So I guess this is not entirely. A north with the the south probably、uh, more a contrast between the centers of population and cities in the east vis-a-vis the more、um, uh, the later developed western regions. Thank you, Mom. And I,、um, if you allow me to interrupt you here, this reminds me of last time, last bit of your conversation, your talk, talking about the spatial movement of the timber industry and movement of the merchants' organizations. So, in a sense. If we're going to talk about deforestation, we need to add a mobility into the motion into、mm. the conversation too, right? So it's nothing static. So great, thank you. Let's move on to the next question、uh, from our audience, Zhuang Zhuangzu.、Um, what were the impacts of commercial forestry on rural、mm. communities who used to have access to natural <clears throat> forests for firewood, for food, for herding ground, etc.? Right, that's a great question. So,、um, the private claims 
only applied to the timber trees. So um, the village community would still have their exclusive common access to the forest land for you know, collecting branches for fuel or uh, collecting mushroom and uh, herding their, their animals. So uh, these features of sort of common pool access to the land is still shared by the village community, no matter uh, who actually owns the trees. If you don't mind, I want to insert a sentence again here. So um, I, I, I'm very impressed by the ways in which you talk about the measurement, the development of knowledge uh, in regard to timber. So how to define timber, how big a lump of wood can be defined as timber, right? So volume plays a great role in terms of the, uh, the development of specific measurement. So in this sense, I think into this question and to uh, your answer, um, very important thing is, we need to talk uh, to differentiate different varieties and different categories mm. of how human consider as wood. So firewood yes. and a timber, they are drastically different thing in terms of their scale, in terms of purpose, how they use, right? Yeah. So I think this is relevant to your answer to this question. So everybody, please pay attention to this part of the book. It's really mm. fascinating. Right, okay, let's move on to Professor Jean Anderson's uh, question here from UC uh, Riverside. Loved your book, and so happy to see you in person. Now, how much self-conscious scientific management of the type Joseph McDermott, who happened to be my advisor uh, many years ago, describes for Song was around in Qing Dynasty? Now, um, I... I actually struggled with this question um, a little bit um, because I feel like my depiction of this system is really sort of trying to extract a structure from all of the contracts, right? Um, to sort of rationalize what, what, what they are trying to do. Um, in the local documents, uh, especially in the documents of family division, um, we, we, we do see that um, the, the awareness of, you know, how planting trees and how dealing with this, with the shareholding system um, could solve the problem inherent in the sort of partable inheritance among all the sons, right? So that um, because the growing cycle of the trees and the economy of scale of growing trees could run counter to the logic of uh, equal division over every generation. So we see some element of that and um, their recognition of this whole system practice solving those uh, questions. Um, but then uh, I have difficulty sort of determining whether we could um, or whether they thought of uh, such a system as distinctively scientific or as sort of distinctive from other practices for agriculture, like for other crops that they uh, own and manage at the same time, whether it's rice paddies or uh, maize plantation or um, uh, uh, tong oil trees that Ling mentioned you're, interesting, you're interested in at this moment. 
<clears throat> so short answer, I'm not sure. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. So a lot more research to do in the future, maybe for other scholars. So. Great. Let's move on to the next question from our audience, Anna mm -hmm. McCants. How high is the capital requirement for replanting trees relative to the revenue potential of the ground trees? I'm wondering how expensive that is as a share mm -hmm. of revenues, sustainable um, in your narrow definition. Practice mm -hmm. And did replanting require outside capital or were recycled profits sufficient? Um, I would say recycled profits were sufficient. Um, the restraint is not so much, so in planting trees, um, the, the, the restraint is so much in terms of um, monetary capital investment in the initial stage. It's really the waiting uh, period, right? So that is also, I think the reason why um, even though the labor period, the intensive labor period for this practice is very short compared to the duration of trade growth, they still resorted to the tenant um, system, right? So it's a profit sharing system between the landowner's only side and the uh, side providing labor. Um, if we can sort of hypothesize, imagine a different situation um, that if there is a really abundant capital uh, in the planting stage, um, it might be more profitable for the land owning side to hire wage labor instead of promising the tenant labor that you could share in the final profit. Um, so I think you know, uh, financial cap capital is less of a restraint than the need for some intensive labor in the, in the initial years, plus that very long waiting period, which is the time value of money. Right. Um, Mon, do you mind I interrupt here a little, mm -hmm. just insert a few lines. So one thing when I was reading your book, one thing I was really, I found extremely interesting, which you mentioned twice here and earlier in your talk, that is how to bring different temporality into our understanding mm -hmm. how economy, how a human society or a, a natural environment actually functions. And I think this is extremely important lesson for those of us who conduct environmental history. Um, we are looking at a, a variety of uh, temporality dictated mm -hmm. By, for instance, in this case, for fir trees, it takes 30 years to mature. So the, the establishment of your, the regulation institution, right, money lending, maybe money laundering, all the process <laughs> have to be di dictated to some extent or even or maybe lesser conditioned by the distinct temporality the fir right. forest right, creates. So I think this is such a wonderful dimension um, that your book actually brings about. I think um, we all need to pay greater attention to this issue. So I really thank you for mentioning the matter of the time um, um, here. Wonderful. Let's move on to another question from our audience, uh, David Melman. 
in further reference to how the development of these timber practices and institutions occurred over a very, very long period of time, time again. <laughs> um, that is from the Southern Song onward, as you mentioned, how did catastrophic events like the Taiping Rebellion, as was briefly touched on, the destructive nature of a dynastic transitions, etc., affect their um, emergence. Given our understanding that such events like Songyuan and Yuanming transitions extensively set back commercial development, how did forestry fit or not fit into that understanding in case it is apparent, which is not. So thank you for asking. It's a very important question. Please forgive my lack of understanding or knowledge on the subject. Well, this is a very, that's a great question, really. Um, well, I, I know less about the um, earlier period. I think I will refer you to Ian Miller's book. And I think he does a very good job of um, capturing how forestry reacted to the 14th century crisis. So especially the uh, Yuanming transition, get a very good treatment in that book. But I can say, um, uh, some more about the Taiping Rebellion. Um, the, the, the Taiping Rebellion itself is especially destructive for the lower Yangtze areas. So for the timber industry, it meant that the, this major core of consumption, right, of demand was dismantled. So for a few years in the 1860s, we see a stall of timber trade. Um, that is reflected on the ground in uh, the Guizhou forests um, in the sense that people stopped cutting tree trees. Right? They, um, in one particular family division document, they mentioned that, um, so these tract of trees had already been grown for uh, 35, I cannot remember the exact number, like 35 or 36 years, it's time for cutting. But the market is now interrupted because of the rebellion. They say it's because of the rebels. They didn't say which one, but it's apparent that this is during the Taiping Rebellion. So um, the trade routes were cut off between Guizhou and the Lower Yangtze area. Um, so in this family division document, they say that we'll just wait for a couple more years before we cut the trees down, right? We, so the term is, we wait for a better market. So I think that is um, a kind of flexibility that is afforded by the trees because, you know, you just leave them growing, they won't go anywhere, they won't decay, right? Um, they could, in the short term, right, they could afford that waiting period, um, that flexibility to wait for the market condition to improve. But if the crisis is long-term, then people will rethink if, do we still want to plant trees or do we want to switch to something else? Uh, if for a long time they could not make profit from this, then uh, we see people turning to other cash crops or uh, um, grain production. After the typing, um, in the rebuilding of the Lower Yangtze areas, there was about um, several years in the late 60s, there's a boom in the timber trade. Uh, this is actually, I would say the last booming period for China's domestic timber market 
before the entering of uh, North American uh, lumber from the Trans-Pacific route, which opened up by the late 19th century. So uh, the, 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 the post-Taiping boom um, was sort of the last flourishing period for uh, China's domestic timber production and the timber merchants. So by the early Republican period, they often speak of the post-Taiping decades as a time of nostalgia. This is so fascinating. If we have time, but I wonder if we're going to have time or not. But if we're going to have time later, Meng, I would like to hear you uh, hear from you a little bit about the um, import of a foreign timber mm. and competition. But let's leave it to, yes. to the very last. We have anonymous uh, attendee send in a question. Said, um, "I really enjoy the presentation and look forward to reading the book in the mm. talk. And if I remember correctly, in the late period, China." article, the, um, the tribility of, um, of shares is stressed, but I'm having a hard time envisioning what this means and how were planters or landowners shares sold mm -hmm. networks, well-developed markets to local merchants or merchants involved in the timber trade. Could locals invest in timber shares? What do we know about the market for the sales, for sales of the shares? Thanks. Oh, yeah, it's not anonymous. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Pat, thank you for the question. Um, the sales of shares, so both the tenant planter shares and that owner shares were mostly local. So um, that is to say the shares still circulate among mostly within the same village, but also sometimes um, to a lesser extent involving nearby villages, but it rarely go beyond um, the, the, shame, the same township, right? Um, merchants sometimes want to get their hand into the timber share so that they could secure their supply, but merchants typically, if they do that, um, it is usually um, approaching the time of timber harvest already. Um, so that is to say, they, they, they might get in now and the timber is due to be cut in a couple of months or at most within a year, okay? So I don't see the shares as a means for merchant capital to really get involved into the side of timber production. Planters, uh, usually there is a provision in the contract that if the planters were to sell their shares, they should ask the landowners if they want to buy it first. So the land the owners of the legal title of the land have the right of first refusal. Um, but beyond that, there is no restriction to who they could sell, sell their shares to. So some big landowners in the Eastern Guizhou area, there are a couple of big surnames like the Jiang and the Long. Uh, the Jiang in particular came to have shareholdings in very broad, so um, across several counties, uh, in adjacent counties, they have shareholdings. Um, but still, it is not a sort of re national or even regional market for, for the shares is still a pretty localized phenomenon. 
Thank you, Mong, for answering the question. And actually, I would like to piggyback on this question a little bit. So your talk on your book gave us an impression that commercial economy here, specifically centering on timber trade, mm -hmm. extremely prosperous. And um, the um, trans-regional, inter-regional trade, right, uh, transportation based on water, water uh, uh, channels so were extremely robust. So this is fitting into our general conventional understanding of the boom of uh, commercial economy in mm. late period China became uh, before all the other bad things happened, right? So I have a question though, um, and related to the, this last question. So who could participate in this prosperous, um, you know, uh, uh, trade network? Who basically fell out of the markets? So whose life were livelihood was squeezed? For instance, yeah, what are the what are the other people? So who didn't, you know, enjoy? Didn't get rich in this? <laughs> Well, I, I think um, in this whole network, if uh, I were to name a group of people who lose out in the system, um, I think the rafters probably had the most difficult time, right? So these are the people who see to the transportation of the timber logs across this whole network. Um, um, they would accompany the roughs. And at certain transshipment centers like Yueyang and, and uh, um, uh, the Boyang Lake, uh, then they would also refasten the smaller rafts into bigger ones to survive the Yang's waves. Um, I think, you know, in a sense, these are the mobile temporary workers of that time, right? If you think about migrant workers in contemporary China, I think the rafters were their um, uh, corresponding party in the Latin period here in this, in this particular business. Um, so they carried out most of the very difficult works of logging and transportation. And uh, they spent most of the their time on water. Um, they get paid a very minimum wage. Um, they don't get to take a share from the profit. So uh, even compared to the tenant planters who then could claim a share and have the flexibility of selling their shares to other parties that are inter interested in this, um, the sort of the migrant workers seem to have a more difficult time in my opinion. Great, yeah, yeah. Um, can I push a little bit here, even um, but the more. So you mentioned uh, southwestern part of China mm -hmm. and the trade um, extended to Guizhou, um, those um, traditionally uh, frontier regions. And uh, so what happened there? So this kind of a booming economy um, benefiting often um, foreign, not foreign, but uh, outsiders. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the merchants, brokers. So what happened to local, um, let's say, indigenous minorities mm -hmm. experience, you know, this incoming of a new economy? Did, did you, did you see yep. anything interesting there? Yeah. Um, well, I, first, uh, I would say that um, I'm, I, I, what I say probably won't apply to the whole um, minority region in the southwest because this is only a, a portion of that and I'm only looking at forest land and participant in the 
um, timber business. Um, but the local, so the so-called Miao people, right, uh, in, the, in the Qing, um, the local Miao came to own large tracts of uh, timber plantations. Um, so this is the Qingshui River Valley. Um, at least here we don't see the phenomenon that we find in other places of the Miao region that, you know, Han coming in and came to grab the land from the Miao. Uh, in the timber business, they seem to be, you know, very able to hold on to the land and they employed um, new migrants from Jiangxi and Hunan as tenants. So most of the tenants were actually locals, but a small portion of the tenant planners were uh, new migrants from these other provinces. They, they, these were Han. Mm. And the mill also acted as um, brokerages for the timber trade in the, in the local timber market. And uh, for a long time, the Qing state was, so the local government, provincial government was very worried about the kind of ethnic tensions from high merchants coming in. So they had for a very long time, this policy that only the Miao could act as timber brokers uh, in this frontier market. So the Han could not go beyond a certain point. They would have to trade through the Miao intermediaries. And the Miao mountain owners also backed up these uh, Miao brokers when the Han did try to uh, bring a suit in court and say, you know, we also want a timber brokerage license. But then eventually the case was just still in favor of the Miao for them to keep this license. Mm -hmm. This ethnic dimension into this research is really fascinating. So um, I wish we could talk more, but let's leave it future. I would like to remind our audience, we will close in five minutes. So if you have any more thoughts, questions, please rush in. Otherwise, I'm going to take advantage of the rest of five minutes. But before they start forming their thoughts, um, Meng, can I encourage you to share with us a little bit more about how you deal with the materials, all these local sources, as you mentioned, Qingshui Jiang, the Qingshui documents, the Huizhou documents uh, that Joe McDermott and, and also Ian Miller relied on a lot, right? So um, can you say something about, yeah, how do you, how do you use them and the challenge of them? Right. Um, that, that's a great question because we, so with these local documents, whether it's from Qingshui River or from, um, you know, we have a lot more in Huizhou and also uh, in other parts of the lower Yangtze region. And uh, especially now in China, there are institutional effort at digitalizing them and putting the sort of key variables from the contracts into a database. Uh, I initially thought it would be easy because I could just rely on the database um, provided by these publishing institutions. Uh, so that will tell me, you know, who is the seller, who is the buyer, what is the price, what is the location, um, and the title, of, so the type of the contract to, uh, that we can get from the title. But then I came to realize that the title really, so the first sentence of the contract really don't tell us about um, the exact nature of that transaction. Um, so after going through I think, 60, 70, um, I decided that, you know, they say a simple term like, you know, this is a contract for the sale of mountain land, but then you will ha really have to go into the details to see that, oh, this is not the sale of a whole mountain land, but this person is selling a fraction of the shares that he had inherited from his grandfather or something like that. 
Um, so it is, you know, I think it's important even in this digital age where uh, when we can rely on a lot of the database, it is still very important for us to actually read deeply into the text and uh, come up with, it, with our own categories that make sense for the research in classroom. What a great lesson and thank you for sharing. I think um, uh, I experienced that too. So, 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 so wonderful. You have to do that painstaking, you know, hard work, right, mm -hmm. uh, through years. Thank you, Meng. Thank you so much for sharing your work with, uh, uh, with us. And uh, also, I think your insights benefit um, everybody. And um, it's, it's certainly me. So um, thank you, especially uh, you have to, you know, just give the talk between two um, uh, teaching classes. So really appreciate. Um, we uh, look forward to future conversations in other opportunities. And thank you, our audience, for being here. And uh, please follow us and check out our future events um, by Googling Felbank Center for Chinese Studies, Harvard University. You can check out all amazing events there. Thank you for spending time with us. Everybody have a happy Zhongqiu Jie. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. And I hope, you know, don't hesitate to get in touch with me if you want to um, talk more. And, and um, as Ling said, have a great Moon Autumn Festival. And I look forward to the following events at the Fairbank Center. Um, they certainly look really wonderful and um, I look forward to them. Great. Have a great day. John Mong, we'll be in touch. Thank you, Ling. Goodbye.